If you're listening to this podcast, you may have found me through my writing, and you won't be surprised that I'm a big fan of writers who can tell stories about their own lives or infuse their characters' lives with nuances of what it's like to really be human. Matthew Quick is this and so much more. The New York Times bestselling author is the author of Silver Linings Playbook, the book-turned-movie that earned Jennifer Lawrence her first Oscar, and now the author of the newly published We Are the Light. In our conversation, he walks me through his own mental health realities, how he's finding peace daily, and what it's like to write stories without losing yourself in your character struggles. I'm Vivian. This is Happy to Be Here, and here's my conversation with Matthew Quick. I am so excited to be on another episode of Happy to Be Here, this time with author Matthew Quick, who I have his new book here, um, which I'm really excited about, but it's also also the author of The Silver Linings Playbook, which I loved both in book form and in the movie form. And so I'm excited to talk a little bit more about your process of writing, particularly around topics that are often taboo. And while it's mental health is discussed a little bit more nowadays, it's still something that the intricacies of writing characters who have very human struggles can feel overwhelming at times. I'd love for you to kind of just start by introducing yourself, who you are, and everything I didn't say in this intro. <laughs> well, um, I'm Matthew Quick. I'm a person. <laughs> I'm <laughs> probably best known as a writer, um, New York Times bestselling author. Uh, but I'm also somebody who's struggled with anxiety and depression for my entire life. And um, I started off as a young man. I was a high school English teacher, and I found um, that there were a lot of my students with similar problems that would seek me out. I think like seeks like, and I did a lot of unofficial counseling when I was a young teacher. And then uh, somewhere around 30, I just felt as though if I... I didn't write, if I didn't make a big move to, quote, become a writer, that I was, some good part of me was going to die. And um, so I made the jump and, you know, I made this big dramatic shift to start writing full time before I had any contracts. And and it was um, kind of a radical thing to do. But in retrospect, I think it was really an attempt for me to to try to save that young man and to start processing all these feelings around um, my mental health, uh, my view of the world, you know, um, answering some big questions. And so that's how I started writing. As someone who is two months away from turning 30, <laughs> that hit me in a very specific way. And I would love to hear more about that moment specifically in your life of going from living your 20s, which I'm realizing that at this cusp, 29, almost 30, I'm very melancholic. I'm very mm. just retrospective on like, what has my 20s been and where are my, where's my next decade going? And as a writer as well, I think I sit with those big questions around what is, what is life? And like, what are we writing and how can I make sure that I'm, the things that I'm putting out in the world resonate deeply with myself and with whoever's consuming the content as well? But how was that transition for you in terms of your 20-somethings going into your 30s? Well, I'll start by saying um, in my 20s, I was working with some really gifted teenagers that were trying to get into Ivy League schools, to all the top schools. And they really had the opportunity to do more things than I was afforded 
the opportunity to do as a young man. And so, Mm -hmm. of course, their parents, most of their parents were pushing them into the math and sciences because that's where the, quote, money was. Um, And I was Mm -hmm. telling my students, you know, if you want to be a writer, if you want to be a poet, if you want to be a dancer, like the arts are, you know, a worthy thing to pursue. And I started to look in the mirror and say, you know, you hypocrite, you know, because I wanted to do those things. And so I was tasking my students with doing something that I myself wasn't able to do. And I got to this point where I felt like I was 30 and my life was, it sounded so old to me at the time, you know, I just turned 49 this weekend. And, and, um, uh, you know, it seems ridiculously young to me, but at the time it felt really huge 30. And, and so my wife and I, we did this radical thing. We, we, we found out that our house had appreciated. It was really surprising. And so we made a little money on the house sale. And then we traveled and we moved in with my in-laws. And I started writing full time in their unfinished basement, which is where I wrote the Silver Linings playbook. And it was just this hunch that I felt that I should be writing fiction. And not Mm -hmm. many people really understood that at the time. You know, there weren't a lot of cheerleaders in my life saying, yay, this is a thing that you should do. In fact, most of the people in my life were saying, are you okay? You know, this seems like a Mm -hmm. radical move. You're giving up a 10-year teaching position in a great high school. But there was something in me that just knew that this was what I was, I needed to do. Um, And again, I thought that if I didn't pursue this, this line of work, that the best part of me would die. And, you know, I knew that I didn't want to be a teacher in 15 years, regretting not having been a writer. I knew that wouldn't have been good for anybody. So, so I became a writer. How do you distinguish between the voices in your head and your being that are very anxiety driven? You mentioned struggling with mental health and the voice as in your intuition. Well, um, I've been in Jungian analysis now for two years, and I think my analysts would say that they're not, there's not such a great distinction between those two things. You know, I think sometimes in the modern world, what we think of as um, mental illness, mm-hmm. you know, a more inclusive attitude to that would be just the voice that's telling you that the way that you're living is not healthy and to pursue a different way of living. So, you know, the voice that I was in my head when I was teaching those last couple of years was, I, I, don't, I don't think I could walk in the building. I'm going to have an anxiety attack. Like, this isn't something I want to do anymore. And I think that was also the voice that was saying, you can do it. Like, you can leave. You know, like, there's, there's a different path for you. Um, mm-hmm. And so what initially sounded like mental illness was really my soul telling me, you're not doing the thing that you need to do. And I would say that when I'm writing uh, and I'm writing well, um, I'm always moving towards something positive. You know, even with my books, they're, they're, they're full of darkness, but I'm always looking for the light. Like I'm always trying to move towards the light. I'm always trying to move towards wholeness. I'm always trying to move towards uh, reunification to my characters finding the best version of themselves. And so... Mm-hmm. When I have these voices in my head or, you know, whether they're creative or wh- whatever else they are, I'm always thinking, where are they taking me? Where are they leading me to? Um, you know, I'm four years sober, uh, you know, now. And the voice in my head that was saying, drink more, 
drink more scotch. Like that was, that was not a good voice because it took me to a bad place. Um, but the voice in my head that said, you know, you, you can give up alcohol and you can survive. Like that was a good voice. And so I always look at where these voices are, are taking me, you know, where are they leading me? Um, and, you know, I try to look off and project into the future and see where that is. I feel like you, you're a very introspective human in general through this conversation for the last 10 minutes of my knowing you. Um, but I also think that that is probably really helpful when you're writing books of this nature and also really hard because how do you create the separation when you put the, when you close the laptop for the day and walk away from these characters and say their mental health struggles or the arcs of their stories won't affect the fact that I have to go to dinner with my friend or that I'm living my life as well. How do you create that separation enough so that you're still like a healthy human being outside of writing stories that go really deep? Yeah. You know, I think, um, the unhealthy way I dealt with that for a long time was with alcohol every night. It was alcohol at night, caffeine in the morning. And that was the first, uh, I don't know, 12 years of my writing life. Um, but since um, I got sober four years ago, uh, I think analysis helps a lot. Um, I think uh, talking with my wife, I go for a run every day after I finish um, writing and kind of deep, you know, deprogram my brain yeah just kind of get back into my body um because you're so much in your head when you're writing and you're inhabiting this character's psyche in a way that uh takes you to really emotional places and especially with we are the light it took me to some pretty dark places so you know i try to cleanse myself with a run afterwards and, and just try to remember that i'm not porous and you know to realize that there's there's a me and then there's the rest of the world and the two things aren't enmeshed. And, you know, that, that's been a long journey for me. And it's something I'm still, I'm still working on, to be honest. But I would say the hardest part about writing is, for me as an introvert, is to create this world and create these characters and then to send them out into the world and um, to allow other people to interact with them and to kind of let go and say, you know, these characters aren't mine anymore. Like this is an experience for somebody else. And that can be very difficult for me because something that I was so intimate with and it was so private and it belonged to me only now, you know, thousands and thousands of people might be interacting with these and having their own experiences and, and allowing people to say that, okay, that's their experience, whether they love it, they hate it, they're indifferent. That's their experience. And that's not my experience and keeping those two things separate. I think it's hard for, any fiction writer, especially during publication time. I feel like that sentence that you just said, I'm not porous, will be etched in my mind for a very <laughs> long time. Because I think that that is personally something I struggle with just because I I feel so much. And, and sometimes that feels so, like it does permeate. Yeah. And I am not porous will be something that I think I should tattoo across my forehead. <laughs> um, but I also want to hear when it comes to that distinction and walk me through a little bit more about this book in particular, when it came to creating this story and these characters, what can a reader expect when they do jump into a world that you created for them? Well, this book was born out of my experience with Jungian analysis. And when I first um, went into analysis, I bonded with my my analysts in this really surprising and intense way. It took me 46 years to reach out and get help. 
Um, I learned with it for a long time. And I, I'm someone who doesn't trust people easily. That's one of my problems. Uh, and so when I had this very intense bonding experience with my analysts, I became really paranoid that um, he might disappear from my life before our work was done together, before you know we were finished. And so uh, I thought to myself, well, how can I explore that fear in the creative writing wrestling ring? Because that's what I do. You know, I take all of my fears and all of my mental health problems and I try to figure them out on the page. And so... In this novel, uh, my character, Lucas Goodgame, uh, experiences a horrific tragedy in a movie house. And afterwards, he's reeling. And the first thing that happens to him is that his analyst sends him a letter saying that he can no longer treat him anymore. So he's kind of all alone. And so he decides that he's going to write his analyst, Carl, these letters. And so the book is told in, in the form of these really intense and intimate letters where he's trying to, quote, earn the right back to have an analyst again. And really what you see through the experience is Lucas's, his, his soul is shattered, and he's trying to create this fictional relationship that keeps his soul together until he's ready to process the tragedy. And so the book is, in some ways, heartbreaking. Um, in a lot of ways, it's, it's humorous, and it's really about how a town and people rally around this man and hold him together until he's ready to face the tragedy of what happened. And so it's this really beautiful telling of, of a community coming together and loving each other through a horrific experience. I love the idea of he's very much falling apart, but we all cope by just finding ways to glue ourselves back together long enough to get to the point where we can actually process the things we're going through. Yeah. And that's exactly what the book is about. It's not a book about tragedy. It's about a book about love and compassion and the people who show up for you in your darkest hours. It's about finding light um, as the title suggests. Mm -hmm. It's, you mentioned that earlier too, and I love it personally. It's why the podcast is a mental health podcast called happy to be here. Because I don't think we go through the hard things in life or we figure out how to process those things just for the kicks. <laughs> I think we do it because we want to be happier and fuller at the end of it or feel that fullness even through yeah. it. Yeah, and I think I'll add too that um, my struggles, why I would never wish anxiety or depression uh, on anyone else. Um, and if I could wave a magic wand and take them away from myself, I would. But they're also the things that have created the beautiful things in my life too. You know, the struggle has given me the ability to, to write and to have something to say. Um, and it's created opportunities to get close with people who are also struggling with those things. So being fully human means having experiences that are more than just happy, fun experiences. We have to full, you know, we have to experience the full spectrum of life um, and being comfortable with that and being okay with that and realizing that that, that's going to happen no matter who we are, I think is um, maybe the first step into really living as a whole person. That, what you just described, is a level of peace that I think a lot of people aspire to day by day and acceptance for who we are as humans. How did that come about for you? Was that after becoming sober? Was that through like the work that you're doing on yourself right now? Or was that that 30, that, you know, turning 30 epiphany in life trying to embrace it all uh, it definitely did not happen when i was 30 i'm not, I'm not sure that uh <laughs> i'm even there at 49 i just think it's something it's a target you know it's something that we move to mm-hmm. um it's a mountaintop and i think 
every day you climb a little bit more of that mountain. Um, it's an aspiration. It's something that we it, it aspire to be. And, you know, for me, it's, it's a lot of things, you know, it's, it's analysis, it's, it's writing, it's um, having experiences with my friends, but I think mostly it's, it's about being self-reflective and realizing, I think the big shift lately is realizing that it's not about me versus the world. It's not about what other people are doing. It's not about what happens in my career. It's not about the, all the external things. It's about what happens inside of me. Um, and really kind of reclaiming that and, and saying everything that I need to work on is inside of me. It's not out there. It's not this person or that person. Um, it's not this idea or this philosophy. It's, it's all inside of me. And that's really where the battle is won, you know, bringing it home um, and saying, okay, there's a lot of work for me to do in here. And my goal, and I don't always reach this goal every day, is to keep it in here. And to not let all of the struggle and the chaos and all of the stuff, we not, not let that leak out into other people. Of course, I don't always succeed, you know, by any stretch. I don't think anyone does. He does. <laughs> but that has been something that I've really um, tried to focus on, containing my battle and making it my battle, not the battle of other people. That doesn't mean that I don't look for help when I get it. My wife supports me. My friends support me. My analyst supports me. But remembering that it's the battle for Matthew Quick, and that happens inside of me, not out there. And I think that that's been a really important distinction lately. It's something I think I'm learning right now with some stuff that I'm going through. And I think I literally said that to my therapist last week. And I was like, I, I don't talk about the things I'm going through to the extent that I talk about it with her, with my boyfriend, with my friends. I was like, because it's not their battle. Yeah. And I know that they can't take me, they can't come with me into those deep waters and not feel incredibly affected. And they also don't know how to bring me back up and by default don't know how to bring themselves back up from that. And so I know, I know how deep I can take them or where I need them, but it's okay to also seek out the professional who like actually really knows what they're doing within that. And to admit that I am not that professional for myself, yeah. that I need the support of someone else to be able to do that. Um, and you've done a really great job, I think, at creating these characters who exemplify what it looks like to go to really dark, to be human. I was going to say to go to really dark places, but honestly, it's just to be human and to exist in a world that isn't always as picture perfect and fair as we would want it to be. When you were at a space where Silver Linings was becoming a film and the extension of like that world that you were talking about beyond like you, then it's the readers. Now it's like the moviegoers. Yeah. How was that as an experience as a writer, seeing these stories actually come to like a tangible physical life in a way that a book is imaginative, but it's not like, oh, I can point out who that actor is. Yeah, it was, it was really heady you know, and, um, yeah, and imagine. I, I was not prepared for it in any stretch of, you know, imagination. And, you know, I went from being a relatively unknown writer to, you know, being backstage at Katie Couric with Bradley Cooper and Robert De Niro. I mean, it, it was very, <laughs> it happened very quickly. Um, but the movie, making the movie happened over a long period of time, but the publicity like really happened fast. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I think one of the things I learned was that stories have a life of their own. They have a fate. 
And, you know, you, you might write the story, but when it leaves you, it becomes something other than you. You externalize it and then you don't have control. Um, and I was very lucky that David O. Russell made a beautiful film and it brought a lot of attention to my book and, you know, it promoted mental health awareness, which are really great, beautiful things. And Jennifer Lawrence won an Oscar. Um, but really... It was interesting because I got a lot of attention for that part of it, but that's not really what I did. Like I wrote, I wrote the novel. And the other thing that was really interesting too was, you know, the original novel, not a single word changed in the novel, but as soon as we put Bradley Cooper and Jennifer Lawrence's face, it became something that was different than what it was before. Mm -hmm. And so realizing that uh, and having the humility to say that, we can put our best efforts into the world and, you know, we can mine ourselves and, and really try to, to put something on the page that is really meaningful. What happens in the collective when it goes out there is very mysterious. And why are some books picked and some aren't and some get made into Oscar winning movies and some aren't? I don't really know. Um, I, I just mm-hmm. think that what I decided to do was, okay, with this opportunity, I'm going to try to tell the best stories that I can and be as authentic as I can be and to put my voice out there continually and to see what comes back in response. Um, and so uh, it's taken me to a lot of interesting places. You know, when I published Silver Linings Playbook, it was, what, 2008? So um, I would have never dreamed I'd be talking with you today back then. You know, and I'm sure you probably. I watched that movie and read the book when it came out, and I don't think I would have imagined <laughs> sitting here with you. How old were you in 2008? That was 2008. Ooh, I was a little, yeah. yeah. And I had just, so I've always lived with anxiety. I lost my mom when I was very young. Um, I was right. 10 years old, and thank you. And I, um, my grandma raised me, and then. I lost her when I was 21 in college, but I was her caretaker and like there was a lot of stuff there. And so I think I've always in some way, shape or form navigated grief and the anxiety that comes with that. And then when I was 21 is when I started a platform for young adults who were grieving. And that's kind of what spun me into the career I'm in now. And like as a writer, I always turn to words. Like words were the stories, were the things that made me feel a lot less alone in a world where I didn't know anyone else who had lost someone and I didn't know anyone else who was struggling and who was as deeply affected in different ways as like I was or my family was by these losses. And so to see things on screen or in books, that those things saved my life, right? Like both as a reader and then later as a writer. And so I can see what you mean when you say like, it's heady to put something out there and be like, here's the thing that I have been living with and struggling with and trying to decipher for myself. And it's a alphabet soup that I'm piecing together to bring myself more peace. And then suddenly someone else is like, well, actually it brought me a lot of peace too. That's not why you do it, but it is a great side effect of doing it. But it can also, I think, I can imagine and project myself into what you experienced at the height of that. And feeling a level of responsibility towards a community and a conversation mm. that you are an active participant in, right? It's not like you like were suddenly cured after writing the book. Like you still had demons and things that you were fighting with. Yeah. And I see this on the social media side of things where I'm like, you know, people build us up and then 
but you're still the same person who was struggling that first time that you talked about having anxiety or dealing with grief. Um, and I think a lot of people now are, are looking for a way to balance their need to create something out of the feelings that they're harboring with how do you self-protect in a way that doesn't close you off to that creativity or to the connections with people for fear of suddenly being on the receiving end of too much responsibility for something you're still coping with. So I think there are a lot of dynamics there. But yes, I I watched and read the, I watched the movie and read the book and I was just so touched because it's, grief for me particularly was such a intangible because I was so young. Um, So seeing a tangible on like what is mental health, what is grief was amazing. Yeah. In my new book, We Are the Light, it's very much about dealing with grief too and you know, just touching on what you were saying earlier, um, one of the things that I've been thinking a lot about as I go out with this novel is, is just trying to tell my truth as I know it. And if that benefits people, great. You know, it's really great. If they don't agree with my truth or it's not for them, that's okay too. But at least I'm not going to do damage to myself by um, misrepresenting myself and it was tough with Silver Linings because I got thrust into this being the mental health guy. And I hadn't even ever even been in therapy before. Um, and so, uh, you know, and I, I was struggling with my alcoholism and drinking too much. And, you know, so there was a lot. I had still had a lot of things that I wasn't ready to discuss. And after I published my last novel, The Reason You're Alive, is when I got sober. And I, I took four or five years off, you know, just to deal with all of that, you know, just to know go into analysis and you know it wasn't planned but that's what happened and even with doing all of that work I still feel at 49 you know going out with another book okay you know am I ready for this do I know and I think sometimes you're you're never ready you know and you 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 just I would never say that putting silver linings into the world when I did was a mistake but I, I had no idea what I was doing at the same time and so I think that, yeah, right. And um, I, I think for me now, you know, kind of in the second half of life, my goal is just really to be authentically me and to open my arms to the people who, who want to embrace that, you know, shape the hand that comes towards me. But uh, I try to tell the truth as I know it at this time period in my life. And I think that's the best that we can do. And if people benefit from that, so much the better. But I think that's really, I think I've always tried to do that. But I think when I was younger, I didn't know my truths as well as I know them now. And I'm sure in 10, 15 years, I'll know them better. And I think also, for me at least, it was, I didn't know my boundaries. Yes. As much as I know them now. Right? Like, you were the mental health guy, I was the grief girl, right? Like I was a young 21 year old who started a website who got root that got popular enough within the grief space to dub me that because I was using the internet in a way where a lot of people in the grief community hadn't been. And I didn't know that. I mean, I just started a website with a couple essays because I was like, I'm lonely. (laughs) Like, I don't know what it's like to know other people who have lost a mom and start dating at 20 something and graduating college and doing all these things. And I was not ready for what it became, what it, I slowly 
became more accustomed to like, oh, this is an amazing platform and I can use this in specific ways. But I also, I think to your point, especially to your introduction of yourself earlier, had to reclaim my own humanity and be like, I am not this, I am a human and I'm still coping. And also it's great that you're benefiting from this, but like, I'm still figuring this out too and not feeling bad about setting those boundaries. Yeah. And defining who you are and knowing your truth and I found that too, especially when I was writing YA, that I would get a lot of emails and letters from teenagers that were hurting um, and sometimes were in really dark places. And, you know, at first I tried to write everyone back and and then you realize you can't write everyone back yep. and you can't be everyone's therapist and you can't take everyone on and realizing that having the humility to realize that you have limitations. Um, and I think that uh, you know, they call it in Jungian terms, sometimes we can get inflated and think that we can save the world and be everybody's best friend, everyone's therapist, everyone's parent, and, and we can't possibly do that and be mentally well. And so I've been working on, you know, even as I kind of re-engage with the collective now, like having the humility to know that I am a human being with flaws and limitations and people might read my book and they might not see that you know they might project some type of fantasy onto me but it's my job not to collude with them and not to um you know to say okay you might think this is who i am sorry this isn't who i am you know i'm glad you read the book and i wish you well um but this is as much as i have to offer the book is the thing i have to offer or the podcast or or the website, or whatever you're offering, and to realize that it's okay to put that firm boundary up um, and say, you know, this is as much as I can do for you today or in this lifetime. That's always been a struggle of mine, too. And I can't imagine, you know, your backstory and, um, you know, especially dealing with grieving. I'm sure you were contacted by many, many people, and that must be really hard for you. And you you were very young when you started I was, and I think I, um, it goes back to that, what you said earlier too, like, I'm not porous. That's what I mean. Like when I say like, I, it took me a very long time to realize like, I'm, I don't have to let things permeate in just because I'm permeating stuff out. And some things can come in through the doors, but I get to choose what that is. And it didn't feel like that for a very long time, especially when you're talking or writing or creating around topics that are so personal to so many people. And feel like, oh my God, that's my experience too. I think that that is beautiful, but it's also difficult and it is layered. And I think I've, I've learned over the last, or my twenties, I really looked at my twenties and I was like, you know what? Like, this is the season where I learned that like, I can still do the things that I really love and not feel consumed by the community that consumes it because they're consuming it, not me. Yeah, Yeah. And that distinction is important. Yeah. Yeah. And, and if you can get that down by 30, that, that is huge. <laughs> Listen, it comes and goes depending on the day you catch me. Yeah, I'm impressed though. I'm impressed. It's very well said. Thank you. And as we start wrapping the conversation up to be um, cognizant of time, what are some things that you want people to really take away as they're picking up this book in November? Well, I think one of the things that I really explore is this idea of positive masculinity. You know, in our society, we hear so much about toxic masculinity, which is a problem, of course, but we never hear people talking about what is positive masculinity. What do we want our men to do? Mm -hmm. And so 
what I tried to write about in the book uh, is male intimacy, like male friendship, you know, um, and uh, the main two characters, my character of Lucas uh, is a former high school teacher and he, he starts mentoring an 18-year-old boy and they have this very beautiful relationship where they, they get together and they create a piece of art. Um, and it's this very healing, wonderful thing that I think is so positive. And I think it's an antidote to the toxic masculinity that really creates the tragedy and the awful problem that exists in this town. I also think, too, the book, um, it opens up this question about uh, do we need um, apolitical or depolarized spaces? You know, just places in our community where we put opinions and politics aside and come together and rally around something else, at least for a small period of time. And I think that's what the people in this community do. You know, in the beginning of the book, there's this push to kind of fracture and to make things political. And some of the characters say, you know, why we know we need to have political activism. We also want to do this other thing that's, that maybe transcends that, that's about love, um, that's about including everyone. And so that was another thing I wanted to, to get across. And finally, I think the book is, it's an all-out love song to the power, the redemptive power of art and story to heal. You know, story as medicine. You know, why do we go to stories? And this is a very Jungian idea that, that stories can heal us. Like they have the medicine in them to really help us move past things and make us whole again. And so the book is a, a hymn or a love song to the power of narrative and art to heal. And I think your career has been that and so much more. And I'm really thankful for your time on this conversation and all the nuggets that you have laid out here and that I will most definitely be tattooing somewhere across the, my forehead. <laughs> I'll be carrying this conversation I had with Matthew for a while, and I hope it resonated with you too. I'm also really thankful for this community and the space you hold for having real conversations that are also fun, dynamic, and honest. I promise to continue to bring guests that live up to that standard, and I think Matthew is that and so much more. Don't forget to rate, review, or share Happy to Be Here with a friend if you can. And I'll catch you next Thursday with a new conversation. 